Hello, my name is Geoffrey White. I'm the Senior Astronomy Educator at Sydney Observatory. I'm going to talk to you about what's visible in the sky for the month of June. Of course, the Sky Guide and Audio Guide are available at our website, www.sydneyobservatory.com.au, and also available from iTunes. For more information about the night sky, we recommend that you purchase a copy of the Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom. As we head towards June, of course, the nights are getting, well, cold. So you need to have some basic equipment with you before you go outside and enjoy the view. I think foremost is a blanket to sit on so you don't get too wet, perhaps even a ground sheet underneath that. To keep you warm, you should have something like a a glass of Milo or some hot chocolate or whatever. And of course, a nice comfy pillow because there is a lot to be seen and enjoyed at this time of year. It's always handy to have with you not only our printed map, but perhaps a a red torch that you can uh, use as well. You need to be able to find your way around the night sky, and there are two measurements that we often need to use. Uh, One of them will always be in a clockwise direction from north, and that is what we describe as azimuth. You need to start off and look north. What we're going to do now is turn to our right, As we're looking towards the east, we have an azimuth of 90 degrees. If you turn towards the south, going towards your right again, you've now got an azimuth of 180. Turning around another 90 or quarter turn, you'll be looking due west, and that has an azimuth of 270 degrees. And of course, coming back to our starting position, you can either say we have an azimuth of 0 or 360. It doesn't really matter. So we like to measure positions, if you like, around the horizon, starting at north, going in a clockwise direction as seen from overhead. And then, of course, we need to measure an angle up from the horizon. And we call this uh, altitude. Interestingly, we've all got a very nice way of finding altitudes. You see, if you hold your pinky at arm's length, it doesn't matter how big you are, how short you are, or anything like that, for all of us... uh, a pinky at arm's length represents about one degree, or twice the size of a full moon. A clenched fist at arm's length represents about 10 degrees. And if you spread your your hand, so from your pinky to your thumb, is as big as you can get it, that's about 20 degrees. So it's a very convenient way of being able to, well, calibrate your tour of the night sky using our maps. If you're using a map from the Australasian Sky Guide or perhaps any one of the number of free programs that you can download that draw up these spectacular images, you'll be very disappointed and I'd have to say somewhat lost if you're trying to find elaborate drawings in the sky. Unfortunately, we've simply got a few thousand points or dots in the sky. It's pretty much impossible to memorise the position of two to 3,000 points of light. So over the years, people have been playing dot to dot and drawing in the imaginary stick figures to help them along the way. If you use your imagination, you'll be fine. You'll be able to draw up some of the constellations or pictures in the sky. Others, I'm afraid, ah, forget it, give up, it's not worth it, they're impossible. Uh, you just have to take our word for it. But Armed with imagination and your sky guide, I'm sure you'll be able to find your way around. And what we're going to do for the month of June, we're going to start off shortly after sunset looking towards the west. 
roughly two clenched fists or one handspan above the western horizon, you should be able to see the brightest star in the night sky. It's not going to appear as bright as it would if it were overhead because you're looking through a lot more atmosphere and it's going to make it look somewhat dimmer. Uh, You're looking at a star that's twice the mass of the sun, 25 times brighter, but at a distance of 8.6 light years away, it's simply the brightest star in the night sky. It's called Sirius the Dog Star. Hmm, I hear you say. You've heard that name before. Yes, of course. It came to Australia as part of the First Fleet. Uh, There's a fairly famous series of novels about a young wizard, and one of the characters in those books is called Sirius Black. So he shares his name with the brightest star in the night sky. The astounding thing is that this star, which is now quite low in the western horizon, was used thousands of years ago uh, by the Egyptians to work out very accurately the length of the year. You see, what they would do is they would look at its setting in relation to the sun, and then for about 70 days the star Sirius would be lost in the glare of the sun. And that very first day that Sirius popped out, if you like, of that glare and could be seen independently of the sun is something called heliacal rise. And when they were able to see that, um, they would work out the length of one year to the next. And by year after year after year of observations, they worked out that the average length of the year was 365 and a quarter days. Not bad, considering they did this several thousand years ago. But what is it now? We see a bright star setting in the west and, well, I have to tell you, it's actually part of a constellation. A constellation is simply a group of stars, an area of the sky. Uh, This particular area is supposed to be uh, the large hunting dog, Canis Major. It's probably a little bit too low for us to make out all of the dog at the moment, so we'll have to wait uh, a little bit longer and come back for that one. If you found Sirius, what I want you to do is turn towards your right ever so slightly, and not far away there's another reasonably bright star. In fact, it's the eighth brightest star in the night sky, and it's called Procyon. And Procyon is the brightest star in the constellation of the small dog. Now look, really, we're a bit late for it, but I still want you to try If you look around, there's not many bright stars over in this part of the sky at all. In fact, Procyon, if you simply draw a line down towards the northwestern horizon, there's just one other nearby bright star. Join the dots and what do you get? Well, in my opinion, you get a straight line. But uh, supposedly those two stars, join them together, you get the smaller of the two hunting dogs of Orion. Orion is well and truly gone at this time of year, so we have no chance of seeing him. And his hunting dogs, the the greater and the lesser dogs, are also probably getting a little bit too hard for us to see at this particular point in time. As we continue around towards your right, and that is taking us up towards the northwest, uh, we come up against the first of our zodiac constellations, and that is Cancer the Crab. But sadly, you have absolutely no chance of seeing Cancer. It's a very dim constellation. It was significant in the past, thousands upon thousands of years ago, because it was the position of 
the solstice. So the sun would seem to glide sideways in relation to stars in this part of the sky. So they named it after an animal that seemed to walk sideways. Fairly logical conclusion, cancer the crab. Uh, unfortunately, you just can't see much of it. So we're going to skip cancer and head around a little bit further and slightly higher, and we're going to see one of the oldest and most famous of all constellations, Leo the Lion. What you're looking for in this part of the sky is pretty much uh, one relatively bright star, which is called Regulus. It's one of the four uh, royal stars. Now, this is an idea that dates back several thousand years to an area between those magnificent rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Yes, so we're talking of the area Mesopotamia. Thousands of years ago, where most of our modern civilizations, we can trace our roots back here somewhat. If you like, the birth of science, the birth of philosophy, and so many wonderful things came from this area. Uh, what people noticed was that the vernal equinox had occurred in the constellation of Taurus the Bull, which we can't see at the moment. Uh, near this star that we're looking at at the moment, Regulus, was the summer solstice. So by this stage, it had drifted from Cancer the Crab into Leo the Lion. So this bright star became the second of the four royal stars, along with Antares in Scorpius, which was the, if you like, the marker for the autumnal equinox, and Fomalo in the constellation of Pisces Astrinus, the southern fish, for the winter solstice. So in the past four very famous stars. But at the moment, we're looking at Regulus, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo the Lion. It's upside down for us in the Southern Hemisphere. So try and find an upside down question mark. You're well on the way to seeing the fiery mane and the chest of Leo the Lion. Once you've got that and you let your imagination go wild, you should be able to see a fairly majestic looking cat sitting there albeit upside down. I've already mentioned Cancer the Crab, the greater dog, the lesser dog, and Leo the Lion. These are, of course, constellations, and constellations have been around, well, we, we don't really don't know how long. We can trace most of the zodiacs, all bar one, back to the time of Mesopotamia, so we're talking about several thousand years ago. The first person we think to actually put together a list or a catalogue of these constellations, and they're simply pictures in the sky, was Claudius Ptolemy, uh, a Roman citizen of Greece nearly 2,000 years ago. And he made up a map, or a chart if you like, of 48 constellations, including all the zodiacs and some of the other ones, but of course not too far into the south. Over the last 2,000 years, we've been updating this catalogue, and this was only completed in the 1930s, when each of the constellations was formally put into a, an area of sky. Much like we break cities into suburbs, we now have 88 official constellations in the sky. And this was a fairly clever thing to do. You see, depending on your age and your eyesight and where you're viewing from, you may be able to see as many as 2,000 stars. It's pretty much impossible for any one person to remember the position of 2,000 individual pinpoints of light. 
But if you make up simple stick figures, you know, dot-to-dot figures, and tell an interesting story about them as a form of memory aid, then you're far more likely to be able to remember the key areas. And the key areas were, and I've already mentioned them, and I'll mention them again because they are so significant, the two solstice and the two equinoxes. And then, of course, you just add a few other stories in for, for navigation and for timing to work out markers, as we've already indicated with Sirius the dog star. And you have a very effective way of using the stars to navigate by and to work out the time of year. So to the ancient Egyptians, this particular group of stars looked like a line. And supposedly this idea comes about uh, because at the time that the Nile River used to flood, lions were fairly common. They would be looking for water, of course, and and any slow-moving animal or person that happened to be in the way. So a time of plenty of water also was apparently a time of plenty of lions. For the more modern but still ancient Greeks, Leo the lion was killed by Hercules as part of his 12 labours. After this, of course, his body was put into the sky. Continue around towards the north after Leo and about one hand span away, maybe a little bit further, we'll come across the constellation that looks like a crow. Well, actually, I don't think it does look like a crow. It is supposedly Corvus the Crow, but to me it looks far more like a shopping trolley than just about anything else. It's fairly high up at this time of year, so looking pretty much due north, look for a group of stars. There's only about four or five of them in a relatively small area. If you see anything that looks like a shopping trolley, then you've happened upon Corvus the Crow. This raises an interesting point. You see, the constellations in the past were named after common ideas, common occurrences, animals, beasts of burden, you know, for example, Taurus the bull. Stories that would be useful or common to your daily life. But these days, with smartphones, tablet PCs, cars, aeroplanes, some of these things look more like modern uh, images. So I don't think it's unfair to say that Corvus looks like a shopping trolley. I just hope that it never becomes officially anything as boring as a shopping trolley. But if your imagination requires it to be so, then so be it. Slightly below Corvus, which is pretty high overhead, and towards the northeast, we'll see another one of the famous zodiac constellations. Unfortunately, it doesn't have any particularly bright stars bar one. This particular constellation is Virgo, goddess of justice, although there are different ideas about the story behind Virgo. Virgo is now home to the autumnal equinox, uh, and that is one of the two points, uh, the equinoxes are the two points where the celestial equator and the ecliptic cross. So for us in the southern hemisphere, the autumnal equinox is indeed the spring equinox. You've got to remember that most of these things were named for the Northern Hemisphere, so for us it's not only upside down but back to front in the South. I'm sure that most people recognise that Virgos are indeed the nicest people on the planet. Hmm, I might get a few emails about that statement. You see, that's something akin to astrology. Astrology and astronomy don't always see eye to eye. 
but we do when we're considering the positions of the stars in the sky. Sadly, Virgo doesn't have any really bright stars, apart from one, which is the brightest star in the constellation, called Spica, and it represents an ear of wheat, the symbol of fertility. There's much debate as to what Virgo actually represents. To the ancient Greeks, Virgo represented the goddess of the harvest and of justice. She would use the scales to weigh the good and evil deeds, but eventually she became so disillusioned at our bad behaviour that she returned to her point in the heavens. In ancient Egypt, Virgo was seen as the goddess Isis and is claimed to have formed the Milky Way by dropping numerous heads of wheat into the sky. So although Virgo is not a particularly bright constellation, it's fairly famous and it looks pretty much like a very large Y-shaped group of stars if you use the old dot-to-dot -dot, uh, idea. As we head around towards the east at this stage, we come across the only one of the zodiac constellations, or zodiac, by the way, circle of animals, that is not a living animal. Have you figured it out yet? It is indeed the constellation of Libra. Libra is the only one of the zodiac constellations not to have originated in Mesopotamia. It seems as though people knew of it, but they didn't actually give it its separate or independent status for quite some time. And the stories that we now have probably come from ancient Egypt. It's reported to have been the balance or the scales that weighed between the upper and the underworlds. And it's usually represented as a human figure uh, holding the scales, except in Arabic astronomy, because you see... Uh, apparently it's not acceptable to make representations of human figures. So quite often it was simply drawn as scales and left the human figure off. Around the time of Julius Caesar, it actually became popular to draw Julius Caesar holding the scales, but this was later dropped and simply returned to being the scales of justice. The really interesting thing about Libra, there's not much to it. There's really only three bright stars, but goodness gracious me, I just love the names of the stars in this constellation. You see, these stars were, as I mentioned, never really their own separate uh, or independent constellation. They used to be considered for some stage as being part of the scorpion, Scorpius as we call it today. The old Arabic word for scorpion is Zubana. So we have three bright stars in Libra, and they all have that as part of their name. The brightest star in Libra is called Zubin el-Ganubi, uh, and of course it means the southern claw of the scorpion. The second brightest star in the constellation of Libra is Zubin Eshamali, meaning the northern claw. But I like Gamma, or the third brightest star, Zubin el-Akrab. Now my pronunciation is probably quite poor, uh, but it means the scorpion's claw. And this raises an interesting point. The sky is one of the best examples of multiculturalism I think you'll ever come across. You have stars with Arabic names. You have stars with uh, Greek and Roman stories behind them. Just about every culture on the planet has stories and uses them to work out the time of year uh, and to work out the cardinal directions. And some of these names, as I've just discussed, are actually quite 
intriguing and quite beautiful. You also should consider that looking at Libra, is it a pair of scales that can weigh up good and bad, or is it simply a fairly good-looking triangle? Of course, take away the imagination, and yes, it's nothing more than a triangle. But with the imagination, certainly I'm sure we can all see the scales of justice. And I think that's something that's well worth remembering as we look across the sky. Imagination, it is such an important thing to have. As we look below Libra towards the east, we come across a, a rising constellation and I think it's one of the only constellations that looks like what it is supposed to be. And yes, it is indeed Scorpius, uh, not Scorpio. Scorpio is its astrological name, and in astronomy we prefer Scorpius. At the heart of Scorpius, you should be able to see a fairly bright orange-reddish-looking star. Now, when we say red, please don't expect traffic light red. It's nothing like that at all. It's more of a a golden, yellow, orangish-looking star. And that is the brightest star in Scorpius. It's called Antares. And again, it's one of the four royal stars dating back many thousands of years ago that was used, if you like, as a place marker for the equinoxes and the solstice. This star, this dying red supergiant, about 600 light-years away and 15 times the mass of the sun, at about 800 times the diameter, so goodness gracious, it's a big star. Its name, Anti-Aries. Hmm, Antares, Antares, Anti-Aries. Anti-Aries means the rival or competitor to the planet Mars. You see, every now and then, the planet Mars comes fairly close to this star, and they look fairly similar. As a result, the star was named as a rival to Mars. Anti-Aries, Antares. What a great name. When you look at Scorpius, if you have a star map there, I'm sure you'll be able to make out the claws of the scorpion. The red star, Antares, if you like, now represents the, the heart of the scorpion. And you leave its short body where the heart is, and then you can see a long curved line of stars that makes its way around to become the sting. Now, there are many different legends about Scorpius, and they typically also relate to uh, the opposite constellation in the sky, and that is Orion the Hunter. One particular story has that the hunter Orion, who boasted that he could kill any animal on the planet, was going out and becoming... Well, over-familiar with the goddess of the hunt, Artemis. Uh, her brother, Apollo, was not particularly keen on this, and as a result, he sent the giant scorpion to attack and kill him. Uh, there are many versions of this, uh, and they don't always end in exactly the same way, uh, but they do in terms of Orion dies, and after some mourning, his body is placed in the sky directly opposite that of Scorpius. So if you can see Scorpius coming up in the east as we can at the moment, uh, there is effectively no chance of seeing Orion as it's already set. The beautiful thing is that Scorpius sits near the centre of the Milky Way galaxy. That's our galaxy as we see it from here. The actual centre of the galaxy is just below the tail of the scorpion, 
and near the next of the zodiacs that is rising at the moment, but a little difficult to see, and that's Sagittarius the Archer. Sagittarius, I think, is a little bit too low for us to see clearly at the moment, so we might have to wait a little bit for that. But just below the tail of the scorpion, roughly 26,000 light years away, is the centre of the Milky Way. And what would be there at the centre of the Milky Way? But Sagittarius A star. Sagittarius A star? What an unusual name. What is it? But a supermassive black hole. A black hole that's roughly 4 million times the mass of the sun. Although that seems rather large, only recently astronomers have discovered other much larger supermassive black holes, hundreds of millions of times bigger than the sun. Uh, by the way, if you ever get an opportunity to visit a black hole, don't go. For what awaits you is the very painful and yes, somewhat irreversible process of spaghettification. Uh, which means if you get too close to a black hole and you cross the danger point, which is called the event horizon, you are going to eventually be ripped apart atom by atom. Not a particularly nice way to go, in my opinion. Forgetting spaghettification, the area around Scorpius is well worth looking at and exploring, if you like, with either a small telescope or your pair of binoculars. But as I've said quite often, you, know, you don't need an expensive telescope or even indeed an expensive set of binoculars. Just an ordinary pair of 7x50s. The trick is you need to be able to hold them still, either by mounting them onto a tripod or, if you like, resting them on a pillow uh, sitting on top of a fence or against a tree or against the side of a building. If you do that, you'll get a much steadier view and the area of the Milky Way around Scorpius is an absolutely gorgeous place to look. There are some lovely clusters there as well, such as M6, often called the Butterfly Cluster, and M7, another open cluster. These are basically just little clusters of young stars that have formed relatively recently. Oh, by the way, We've mentioned the Milky Way, but have you ever wondered why we call it the Milky Way? Well, the best thing is that here in the Southern Hemisphere, the Earth is tilted to one side by 23.5 degrees. That 23.5 degree tilt, which of course is the reason behind the seasons, gives us the best view of the Milky Way. You see, for us in the South, it pretty well passes very nicely high overhead, uh, but for the major population centres in the Northern Hemisphere, the centre of the Milky Way never gets that high up. And the higher it is, the less atmosphere you have to look through, the better the view. Milky Way. Via Lactea. Uh, one particularly common story, or famous story I should say, is that the goddess Hera was breastfeeding a young discarded baby that she'd found until she was told that it was the illegitimate son of her god-husband Zeus. When she found out about this, she ripped him away from her breast, and milk squirted across the sky to form Via Lactea, by milk. Once we've had a look at Scorpius and explored this area with our binoculars, we're going to continue around towards the south, and high in the sky you'll see the smallest of all 88 constellations. 
this is the best time of year to see it. It is, of course, the group of stars that's on the flag of Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, Micronesia. It's also on the Brazilian flag, although you have to look fairly hard to see it there. And there's one other country. Yes, of course, it's us. The group of stars is the Southern Cross. It represents a Christian cross. You see, when European sailors first started coming into the Southern Hemisphere in the 1500s, they were somewhat nervous to see a symbol that was so clearly identifiable with Christianity made them feel good. So they named it the Southern Cross. It didn't officially become part of the Southern Cross, however, or become its own constellation until the 1930s, when the International Astronomical Union finally completed the division of the sky into 88 separate regions or constellations. The Southern Cross is not only significant for us in the Southern Hemisphere, it's bright. It's got three of the top 30 bright stars in it. It's small, so it's conspicuous. It's also very useful. At the moment, I think most people would agree that the Southern Cross is, if you like, standing up. If you were to draw an imaginary line from the top of the cross through the bottom, now the top star is the third brightest, it's called Gamma Crucis, through the bottom star, which is the brightest, called Alpha Crucis. If you extend the line through the bottom four and a half times that length, you come to a fairly empty part of the sky. There's no bright stars there. But that empty part of the sky is the South Celestial Pole. This is the point around which all the stars in the sky rotate in the Southern Hemisphere. It's like the hub, the centre. And throughout the night, the Southern Cross and all the other stars will rotate around this point. But the beauty is the Southern Cross will always point to this one point. It doesn't matter what time of year. It doesn't matter what time of night. If you draw a line from the top of the Christian cross through the bottom, extend it by four and a half times its length, that will take you to the south celestial pole in the sky, and that is south. Simply drop straight down to the ground from that point, and there you've got south. So if you're looking south, to your left will be east, to your right will be west, and directly behind you is north. There you have it one of the most, if not the most important uses of the stars, finding your direction. But I've mentioned that the Southern Cross is significant for us in the Southern Hemisphere. Yes, it is. In New Zealand, the Maori culture sees it as tapanga, representing a boat anchor. But for a truly diverse and rich and beautiful group of stories, you need go no further than the indigenous people of this land. The Aboriginal people of Australia have been here longer and telling stories from generation to generation longer than any other culture on the planet. So their stories of the sky are the oldest. And it's something I think we should all endeavour to learn. So let me tell you one about the Southern Cross. Now this story I'm about to tell you has been told to me by the Indigenous Curator at the Powerhouse Museum, by James Wilson Miller. And this is a story that was documented first around about 1896 by K. Langlow Parker. But this version has been given to me by James, as I've mentioned. And it goes something like this. 
In the very, very beginning of time, there was a great spirit in the sky by the name of Biomag. He walked on the earth and the red ground of the ridges and the plains, and he made three people, two men and one woman. When Biome saw that, that they were all alive and well, he told them what animals and plants they could eat and which ones they shouldn't eat. After a long period, everything was going quite well. There came a period of a long, dry spell, and nearly all the plants and the animals died out. One of the men got so hungry, he killed a small kangaroo rat, cooked it, and gave some of it to the woman to eat. She enjoyed it. Both of them then offered some of the meat to the other man, but he refused to eat it. They kept offering time and time again, but he refused and got annoyed with them and started to walk off in, the, in a direction away from the man and woman eating the, the kangaroo rat. When they finished eating, they looked up and they saw that he'd gone, so they walked off after him. They walked over the hills and the pebbly ground until they found him at the edge of a big coolabar plain near the side of a big river. He was weak from hunger, but he would not stop. They called out to him, but he kept walking. He walked and walked until he came to the side of a big gum tree, and there he fell to the ground, dead. Right next to him, the man and woman could see a huge, big, black figure with fiery eyes. It lifted up his body and put it into the hollow of a tree. The man and the woman ran towards it, but there was a great crack of thunder, and they fell to the ground, startled and stunned. When they looked up, they saw the black figure of the Yowie lifting the tree upwards from the ground and carrying it into the southern sky. They could not see their lost friend any more, but only the two fiery eyes of the Yowie as it continued up into the sky. They suddenly heard the raucous shriek of two Muyi, two sulphur-crested cockatoos flying up into the sky after the tree. On and on. The spirit went up into the sky with the two Mii shrieking, flying after it, trying to get back into their tree. Finally, the tree was so far away they could barely see it, and it planted itself next to the Milky Way up in the sky. The tree was so small they couldn't see it anymore, but they could see the eyes of the Yowie and the eyes of the first man who had died. And those four stars became the four brightest stars in the Southern Cross. The two Muyi, the sulphur-crested cockatoos, are still chasing their tree and can be seen next door as the stars Alpha and Beta Centauri, the bright pointers that point toward the Southern Cross. That's a story from the Murray people from the northern New South Wales region and the southeast area of Queensland. Now, there are many, many other stories around this beautiful land of ours with something like 500 different Aboriginal groups around Australia. There are many different versions of stories about the Southern Cross. We're fairly high in the South at the moment, talking about the Southern Cross and its rich history. But do you know what? It's also a spectacular place to go hunting with a pair of binoculars. Again, and I can't state it enough, you must make them steady. Otherwise, your tired arms will start to vibrate and you'll shake up and down. You won't be able to see the beauty that's hidden up there, just waiting for you to have a look at it. Go from the Southern Cross, which is high in the south, and I want you to drift down towards the second brightest star in the night sky, although it'll be getting quite low in the southwest at this particular point in time, and that is Canopus. Canopus is a fairly hot 
big star. It's about 20,000 times brighter than the sun, but at 310 light years away, that means it's only the second brightest star in the night sky after Sirius the dog star, but that will now be quite low in the west. So they're both getting hard to see. But this whole area from the Southern Cross down to Canopus is well worth a look as you traverse what was the largest of all the constellations, Argo Navis, the ship that carried Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece. Um, it's too big, and as a result, astronomers broke it up into four smaller constellations, Carina the Keel, uh, Pupus the Deck, Pixis the Compass, and Vela the Sails. But this whole area is well worth a look because there are so many beautiful things to see, even with a small telescope or small pair of binoculars. Actually, I, I should go back to the Southern Cross. If you look at the Southern Cross, the bottom star at the moment, A-Crux, I want you to go around in a clockwise direction. So the next star will be on the upper left is Beta Crucis. If you've got a pair of binoculars, train your binoculars onto this star, Beta Crucis. And if you do so, just to the side of that and down a fraction, you'll be able to see a young group of stars, an example of an open cluster. An open cluster is a very young group of stars, all formed at the same time from the same cloud of gas and dust. They're at the same distance from us. So it is, if you like, a, a very good example of a controlled situation. The only key variable that we have is mass. And that variable is, to some extent, the most important of them all. This group of stars that you're looking at, this little cluster, is called NGC 4755 or New General Catalogue Object Number 4755. But its common name, I think, is far more beautiful, and that is the descriptive name of the Jewel Box. You see, if you look at this young group of stars, you'll see around about 100 of them. They're somewhat more than 6,000 light years away. Most of the stars are white. There's some with a slightly bluish hint. But there's also one which is very clearly red. Again, I state for the record, it's not traffic light or laser red, but it's golden yellowish orange. So you've got all different colours there, and it looks like a fine piece of jewellery laid out on black velvet, hence the name the Jewel Box. I think the Jewel Box is probably the second most beautiful open cluster of stars. Uh, the most famous and perhaps the most beautiful is that of the Pleiades M45 or Subaru, uh, in the constellation of Taurus the Bull, but that's not visible at this time of year. So scanning from the jewel box in the Southern Cross down towards Canopus, which is getting low in the southwest, you'll see some spectacular sights. It's a very rich part of the Milky Way. There are lots of clusters there to be seen. Take your time, enjoy the view. It's well worth the effort. Before we leave the Southern Cross, we should actually make note of one more aspect. Again, go to the brightest star of the cross, which is at the bottom. Look to where we just were, looking at Beta Crucis on the left. And if you're away from the city and there's no moon, you should be able to see that there's a, well, a dark patch against the Milky Way. This dark patch is often referred to as the nest of an eagle. You see, some indigenous communities see the Southern Cross as being the footprint of an eagle. We've got the nest of the eagle snuggled up against the footprint, and the two bright pointer stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, nearby represent a throwing stick that was used to smack the eagle on the head. However, 
there's another way of looking at it, and that is to look at the dark patch that is the coal sack or that eagle's nest. If you look carefully, you'll see that that dark patch extends its way back down towards the east, towards the constellation of Scorpius. I believe that there are only two key groups of people in the world that actually look at pictures in the sky made up of, if you like, a lack of stars. And they are indeed the Incas of South America and some indigenous communities of Australia. So look for this lack of stars extending from the Southern Cross back towards Scorpius, and you may just be able to see the outline of an emu. The coal sack up against the Southern Cross represents the head. Uh, it's fairly easy to see. Then you've got a long, slender neck of darkness, if you like, which suddenly gets a lot broader in the area of Scorpius, and that represents the body of the bird. If you can make it out into the countryside and see this, it's one of those aha moments and well worth the effort. We've all spent so much time trying to see pictures in the sky by joining the dots and using our imagination. But in this particular instance, it's the lack of stars that make up a picture. Oh, by the way, intriguingly, if you can make it to the Karingai Chase National Park just north of Sydney, you'll actually be able to see a carving of an emu on the Elvina Track. And it's remarkably like this lack of stars that I've just been describing from the Southern Cross down to Scorpius. But please, make sure you check with National Parks and Wildlife before you go into the park and make sure you treat the carvings with the utmost respect that they deserve because they are truly spectacular things to see. Wrapped around the Southern Cross and high overhead at the moment is the large constellation of the centaur, half man, half horse. There are two centaurs in the sky. One of them I've already mentioned coming up low in the east is, I think, a little bit too hard to see at the moment, and that's Sagittarius. But the higher of the two and the easier to see wrapped around the Southern Cross is that of Chiron. Uh, Chiron was a particularly nice fellow, apparently. He was a tutor, or if you like, teacher to fabulous characters in mythology, Achilles, Hercules, and Jason from Jason and the Argonauts. It is nonetheless hard to see a half-man, half-horse, but if you can see the Muyi, the sulphur-crested cockatoos that I mentioned before that were chasing the tree into the sky, Alpha and Beta Centauri, they represent the front legs of the horse. From there, we simply see a stick figure that wraps all the way around the constellation of the Southern Cross, and you can pretty well see the half-horse part, the half-man part, holding a spear, uh, supposedly pointing towards the scorpion, is a little more difficult, but as long as you've got your sky guide, I'm sure you'll be able to see it, and it's well worth the effort. As we've already mentioned, you're heading down from the Southern Cross, which is placed high in the south at the moment, heading down towards the southwest, you'll pass through the constellation of Carina the Keel. I've said this is a really good area to look at, and I should also point out that there's something rather spectacular going on in this constellation. It's not visible to the naked eye, but there's a star there called Eta Carina, which in the 1840s was just a relatively dim background star. But in 1843, this star 
because of its nature, and that being a cataclysmic variable star, underwent, if you like, a, a precursor to detonating as a Type II supernova. It shed something like 30 solar masses of material and flared up. By 1843, it was the second brightest star in the night sky. Now, the Burong people of the Wagera language group in the northwest of Victoria were able to see this, and they incorporated it into their dreaming. And they named it Kologwarik Wa, which means the wife of Wa, represented by the star Canopus to most of us these days. So that's well worth a look. It's a beautiful part of the sky to scan. As we scan towards the right again, we should be able to see uh, Sirius, where we started our tour of the sky for the month, but it will be getting down quite low and perhaps by this stage may have set altogether. Highlights for June 2012. Let's start with the moon. On Monday the 4th of June, the moon will be full at 9.12pm. Monday the 11th of June will be the last quarter moon at 8.41pm. Wednesday the 20th of June, the moon will be new at 1.02am. And on Wednesday the 27th of June, it will be first quarter at 1.30pm. The winter solstice, the point at which the sun appears to stand still in the sky, will occur on the 21st at 9.09am. There will be a partial lunar eclipse uh, on the 4th of June. It will start at 7.59pm and will end at 10.07pm, with just 38% of the moon being covered by the Earth's shadow. By mid-month, the planet Mercury will appear in the constellation of Gemini, low in the west, shortly after sunset, and will move to the constellation of Cancer by the end of the month. On the 21st of June, the thin crescent moon will be uh, below and to the left of Mercury, and on the 22nd, the moon is just above the planet. Mars is high in the north in the constellation of Leo, and then moving into Virgo later in the month, and on June 26th, the moon is just above and to the left, or if you like, the west of uh, the planet Mars. Saturn will also be in the constellation of Virgo and will be near the moon on the 1st and then again on the 28th. At 6pm on the 27th of June, the first quarter moon, Mars and Saturn are all very close together, and this is a fabulous opportunity to get a great photo, so make sure that you don't miss it. The main event for June 2012, and indeed I'd say the main event for the entire year, is the transit of Venus. Transits of Venus occur, well, about 100 years apart. There's something like a 240-year cycle, but it's a bit complicated. The last transit of Venus was in 2004. We have one this year on the 6th of June, but if you miss this one, you've got to wait until 2117 and then 2125. Yeah, I don't like your chances. So make sure you see the transit of Venus on the 6th of June this year. Sydney Observatory will, of course, be conducting live viewing of the six-hour event from 8.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time through to 2.45 p.m. Australia, New Zealand, and indeed most of Asia, and indeed Alaska, 
believe it or not, are perfectly positioned to see the transit of Venus this time. It was first observed in 1639 by Jeremiah Horrocks near Liverpool in England. Then in 1716, the astronomer royal Edmund Halley predicted that there was a transit coming up in 1761 and that by using Kepler's third laws of planetary motion, you could actually work out the distance from the Earth to the Sun. If you could do that accurately, you'd also be able to work out the distance for every other planet in the solar system to the Sun and therefore the scale of the solar system. Uh, This was attempted numerous times. Uh, but not done all that successfully, unfortunately. But it's well worth a chance. Please visit our website. You can even have a go at an interactive JavaScript program, which will allow you to simulate and measure the distance from the Earth to the Sun. In effect, this was the biggest ruler in the solar system. This event is something not to be missed. But for details, please check our website at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au. By the way, if you're after a memento or, in fact, would like to learn more about the transit of Venus, not only can you visit our website and play with our JavaScript interactive program, but you can purchase a book, The Transit of Venus by Dr. Nick Long. It is a spectacular publication with lots of fabulous uh, articles and images, well worth a look. And, of course, it's available uh, from Sydney Observatory, the Powerhouse Museum, and online via Powerhouse Publishing. Don't forget that you can download your map of the night sky at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au and you can purchase your copy of the Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom from Sydney Observatory, the Powerhouse Museum, good booksellers, and, of course, from the Powerhouse Shop Online. You can also subscribe to our Sydney Observatory monthly Sky Guide podcast on iTunes. My name's Geoffrey Wyatt. I'm the Senior Astronomy Educator at Sydney Observatory, and I hope you've enjoyed your tour of the June 2012 sky. <laughs>